Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Really Thank you so much. And I am naturally oh, indebted to truly, truly great. And the Oscar goes to... Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Hello. Hello. We're back. Happy New Year. At the end of January. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for bearing with us throughout our long hiatus here. Yeah, had a little holiday break, had a little winter break. Yeah. Little way to split up the year for us, which is always nice. Helps mm-hmm. us to get everything back in order. But today we are here bringing you a new episode about the 48th Academy Awards and the Best Picture winner, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, pretty good way to start off the year. Big winner. Yeah. Very acclaimed film. Extremely. <laughs> One of only a few to do something that you will tell us all about. (laughs) Thanks for not ruining all of my information for Uh, me. Just a little teaser to keep the people (laughs) engaged and listening. (laughs) Uh, But first, we bring you the Penny News. Yeah, the news about Penny, a pup date. The Penny News uh, is a little bit delayed, obviously, because we're going to mention holiday things about Penny and Bosley, of course. Uh, But it's the end of January. So, who cares? (laughs) But the news about Penny this time is that Penny and Bosley do so well in the car now. Shocker. I mean, I was very surprised. So, for those of you who don't know, we had the stupid, crazy idea that this year for the holidays, instead of flying home, we would drive home and bring the dogs From L.A. to the East Coast, baby. Oh, my gosh. It was a cross-country road trip with the dogs. Uh, and Penny has done this trip uh, a lot of times now. Yeah, poor pup. And she does not, up to this point, has really not enjoyed it. She has been horrible in the car. Very she, antsy, yeah, whiny. so anxious. She, like, claws her way the into the front lap. seat. Yeah. But this time, uh, Penny and Bosley were together. They had each other to commiserate with. Yeah. And... We put a bed across the back seat, and they just cuddled. Yeah. For uh, Note for all you dog owners out there, make sure you have seatbelts for your dogs. Uh-huh. That's important. But they both wore their seatbelts, and they both had this big bed, and they just laid in the bed and cuddled the whole time. I took like 10,000 pictures because I could not believe what I was seeing. And they were just peaceful. They just slept. Yeah. All the way there and all the way back. Yeah. And, like, it's funny because I feel like their relationship has definitely changed since this experience. They're much more cuddly with each other. They're totally fine being close to each other. They do a lot of stuff together now that they weren't doing together before. They've been through something. And that's what you call a trauma bond. (laughs) Hmm. But they did great. We were so impressed with them. They were so well behaved. They were incredible. Good job, Penny. And good job to Bosley. Yeah, I feel like Bosley's kind of going to have to take over some of this section now. Uh, I mean, it's Penny News, <laughs> and then Bosley has his own segment in Bosley's the other episodes. segment has nothing to do with him as a dog, though. It just has it to does. Do- it has to do with him <laughs> and his enjoyment of film. All right. All right. Well, join us for the Academy Archives to hear all about Bosley, I guess. I mean, you'll hear about Bosley in the Penny News. What did I just say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> Anywho, shall we get on to this ceremony? Yeah, I'm curious to talk, because you and I have not talked super extensively about this movie. Nope, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) We watched it so long ago now, too. (laughs) So before I get into this, just so I kind of have an idea about how you're kind of feeling, how, what do you think about this movie? Um, You hadn't seen it before, or you had seen it before? I had never seen it before. Okay, neither had I. Yeah. Um, it was okay. It was not nearly as good as I was expecting it to be because of the feat that it achieved at this Academy Awards. And also, I think it has just been hyped up so much. Mm -hmm, We're so far. I mean, it's a little bit of that, you know, kind of like watching the, luckily I'd seen The Godfather before. 
Sure. Like before I really knew how hyped it was. Yeah. Um, but uh, some of these movies that we come to that are so overhyped, watching them, I think they don't. I mean, it's impossible for any film to really live up to all oh, expectations. Yeah. Definitely. That, especially one like this. So I think yeah. that was plaguing me and my watch a little bit. Sure. I think that's something we talk about fairly often, which is like recognizing the feats that these films accomplished within the time frame that they accomplished them. Because to us, it's like, uh, it's a trope. That's a whatever. It's been mm-hmm. done before. But some of these things have not been done before. Right. <laughs> and we're witnessing them happen. And they're miraculous to the audience they were intended for. And uh, so I'm learning to appreciate things in that aspect still. I think the things that stuck out to me the most were like the sweetness of of it mm, like yeah there was a lot of sweetness and camaraderie between characters that mm-hmm. i was not expecting i was expecting it to be more horror-ish for some reason okay just not really knowing the story sure. or anything about it i also do think that uh jack nicholson's performance in chinatown is way better than this <laughs> Um, not He's that good in this. he is good in this, but he is really good in Chinatown. Right. So well. that's what I have to say about that. Okay. It, to me, it makes sense that he is winning for this because it's like, well, he's been nominated so many times right. now. Right. And it's and busting we, through in other yeah. categories anyways. Yeah. So. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, this ceremony today, we are talking about the 48th Academy Awards. They were held on March 29th, 1976 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion once again. This year, they were hosted by Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw, George Segal, Goldie Hawn, and Gene Kelly. They kind of just shared the hosting duties, the performing duties, whatever. Uh, we're still kind of in this era of people just generally hosting Mm -hmm. the Oscar is not really having like a specific person who goes all the way through like Bob Hope did in the past or like we see presenters do or like we see hosts do today it's kind of still that everybody shares it kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh it was produced by Howard Koch and directed by Marty Pasita both of which are veterans at this point they've been doing this for a while on and off so pretty straightforward ceremony i don't really have anything crazy to say about this ceremony which i think speaks to both of them that it was just well produced well directed straightforward Mm -hmm. no major controversies which is quite crazy for the time period we're in yeah yeah those of you who have not joined us before you can listen to our last couple episodes the 70s were nuts Mm -hmm. people love to just do random stunts or intentional stunts or whatever so Uh, This year, ABC had taken over the broadcast rights from NBC. They have, of course, maintained their rights until this day. So no more switching back and forth. I've talked about that extensively in our past episodes. So if you want to learn about that, go ahead and go back. But at this point, this is what it will be going forward. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, because, you know, people talk about these, it was incorporated into the ceremony a little bit. Um, NBC was simultaneously covering the NCAA championship basketball game that aired at the same time. Mm. Um, So during the presentation of best film editing, uh, the winner was jokingly announced by presenter Elliot Gould as Indiana 8668. Oh my. Because the Indiana Hoosiers had won the NCAA title that night in Philadelphia. So good for them. I would be very ticked off if I was in the audience about to find out if I was going to win an Oscar and they said no name instead, just said the score of a basketball game. I'd be like, get on with it. (laughs) Sounds like a fun time to me. Mm. The other part of this ceremony that was interesting, you know, of course, they do a big opening number, lots of dancers, all that kind of thing. Pretty much all the opening numbers are the same up to this point where it's like a tribute to Hollywood. Hollywood highlights, Hollywood honors, that kind of thing. So same concept. At the end, Elizabeth Taylor closed the show by leading a salute to the nation's bicentennial. Oh, my. So she sang a couple of Americana songs to Mm -hmm. salute the nation. Oh, good for her. (laughs) Uh, So during this ceremony, the most important thing to know, of course, is the big sweep. Mm -hmm. So one flew over the cuckoo's nest, who is our winner for best picture. Uh, They made a clean sweep of the big five. The five major categories, of course, being best picture, best actor, best actress, best director, and best screenplay, either adapted or original. And it did win all five, including adapted screenplay. 
At this point, it was the second of only three films to do so. Uh, The previous film that did this was It Happened One Night in Mm -hmm. 1934. Uh, And then after this in the future, (laughs) The Silence of the Lamb will do this again in 1991. But Mm. those are the only three that have actually accomplished this feat. Many, many films have been nominated for the Big Five. Mm -hmm. But these are the only three that have actually swept. Um, I was like kind of looking at all the stats about this too, which... I kind of discovered a stat that I think is very interesting, which is of films that are nominated for the big five, right? Mm -hmm. The most common loss where they've won four, but they've lost one thing, which did not qualify them for the big five is to lose best actor. Mm -hmm. So previous films that have done this are gone with the wind. Clark Gable was the only one who did not win his nomination. Mrs. Miniver, Walter Pigeon was the only one who did not win his nomination. Annie Hall, Woody Allen was the only one who did not win his nomination. Mm -hmm. The only time that a single miss amongst all the categories was a best actress or literally anything other than best actor was for American Beauty when Uh, Annette Bening was the only one who did not win in her category. Interesting. So I just thought that was so interesting because we've talked in the past and we'll get into it more as we go forward because I feel like it's a more contemporary thing that often best actress is like the category that goes rogue the most, right? Right. Best actress is the category that is often not tied to the other categories like best picture and things like that. Mm -hmm. But in this case, throughout history, the big five sweeps have most often been lost by the best actor. Interesting. Yeah. So there you go. Um, This year, 20-year-old French actress Isabelle Ajani received her first nomination for Best Actress and became the youngest nominee in that category, breaking Mm. the previous record that was set by 22-year-old Elizabeth Hartman in 1965. Of course, today, this record has been surpassed a couple of times. 13-year-old Keisha Castle-Hughes in 2004, again by Quivenjane Wallace in 2013 at nine years old Mm. for Beasts of the Southern Wild. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, But this year, it is broken again, which is funny because in this same year, at age 80, George Burns becomes the oldest acting winner. Wow. Um, He was also, at this point, the last person born in the 19th century to receive an acting award. Wow. So this record for oldest stood until Jessica Tandy won Best Actress in 1989. But then it was all for nothing because later on, um, oldest Best Supporting Actor was won by Christopher Plummer in 2012 at the Mm -hmm. age of 82. Mm -hmm. Um, Which was just very recently beat by Anthony Hopkins Mm -hmm. at age 83. So Christopher Plummer, 82. One year later... Anthony Hopkins came in for it. For The Father. For The Father, yep. Mm -hmm. Which is a great movie. Mm -hmm. You should definitely watch it if you've not seen it. Um, This year, Jaws won all of its nominations except for Best Picture. It was the last film to do this until Traffic will come out in 2000. I kept seeing this stat everywhere. This was on like every website I looked at and all the articles I looked at. And I was like, who cares? Why does this matter? Because... Jaws was nominated for mostly technical mm. and like music and things like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't nominated for best actor, best director, those kinds of things, which I feel like are the precursors to winning best picture. So mm-hmm. I saw this stat everywhere and people were like, oh yeah, it won all of its nominations except best picture. And I was like, well, you can't give best picture to something that wasn't nominated in the other categories that are like the big categories. So not to say those other categories aren't big, blah, blah, blah. Mm. <laughs> Interesting coming but. from an actor. <laughs> I'm Thinking saying. Thinking the other things aren't important. <laughs> uh, I'll get into this controversy oh, uh, in my Academy Archives okay. when I discuss the film Jaws. All right, all right. I would Why like to. Why it maybe <laughs> should have won Best Picture. Here's what I will say I'm not speaking at this from an actor's perspective. I'm speaking. As a historian of the Oscars, uh-huh. <laughs> that it is not in the tradition to win Best Picture if you've not won any of those other categories or at least been nominated All in them. All you Jaws fans will feel vindicated oh, brother. and listen to me talk about that film. Okay, okay, okay. The other thing I wanted to mention is that um, the film MR Chord, which was nominated for Best Director this year, is one of only a couple of films but specifically a film this year and the last film to do this that was nominated two years in a row. Oh, So last year at the 1975 Academy Awards that were for the year 1974, mm-hmm. it won Best Foreign Film. 
This oh. year, it was nominated for other categories, technical categories, best director mm. and for a screenplay. Um, and the reason that it was nominated for two separate years in a row is that because it's a foreign film, for best foreign film language category, um, it goes by the year it premiered in the country of origin. Mm. And then for all other categories, it's when its L.A. premiere happened. Mm. So it premiered two separate years consecutively. Gotcha. So they actually ended up changing some rules because of this so that that wouldn't continue to happen. Mm, that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but it was the first one to kind of do that. And uh, Federico F- uh, Fellini is a very you know, famous director. And mm-hmm. so naturally his work was profound and was getting the recognition anyways. Um, so they've kind of made it so that if you want to be nominated in those other categories, you still have to have your LA premiere, but you can only do it once. So you got to go in both locations mm. within the same year. Right. So that's kind of how that happened. Um, the last thing I just wanted to mention that I thought was sweet um, throughout this ceremony you know, I watch a lot of the clips since we're at an age, finally, where all the clips are preserved. So I watch most of the ceremony online myself. Mm-hmm. And one thing that was really, really sweet and very touching to me was um, Louise Fletcher's acceptance speech. Um, so mm. she won Best Actress for her role of Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And she does most of her um, speech. But then at the very end, she did the end part of her acceptance speech in sign language Hmm. um, because she wanted to address her deaf parents who were at home. Mm -hmm. So in sign language, she says, and she speaks while she does it, but she says, "Um, I want to thank you for teaching me to have a dream. You are seeing my dream come true, Mm -hmm. which was very touching and very moving. And it was really lovely. And of course people go wild for it. And so I just wanted to mention that because I thought that was very special. And I didn't know that she came from a deaf family. So Mm -hmm. that's just very interesting about her and her experiences. And so, yeah. Yeah. Her mother was born deaf and then her father um, uh, became deaf after being struck by lightning. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's scary. Yes. My own father's been struck by lightning. (laughs) 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 But uh, Bob's still trucking along. Hmm. So. But anyways, that's what I have to share about this year's ceremony. So without further ado, I will go through our awards. Mm-hmm. All right. So as we all know, of course, Best Picture goes to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. And Best Director goes to Milos Foreman for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Best Actor goes to Jack Nicholson for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, Best Actress goes to Louise Fletcher. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh-huh. as I've mentioned many times here. Best Supporting Actor goes to George Burns for The Sunshine Boys. Best Supporting Actress goes to Lee Grant for Shampoo. Best Original Screenplay goes to Dog Day Afternoon. Best Screenplay Adapted from Other Material goes to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Best Foreign Language Film goes to Derzu Uzala from the Soviet Union. Best Documentary Feature goes to The Man Who Skied Down Everest. Hmm. Best Documentary Short goes to The End Game. Best live-action short film goes to Angel and Big Joe. Best animated short film goes to Great. Best original score goes to Jaws. This is John Williams' second win for music. Best scoring, original score and adaption or scoring adaption. (laughs) Sorry, it's going to be that way for a little bit longer. Goes to Barry Lyndon. Best original song goes to I'm Easy from Nashville. Best sound goes to Jaws. Best costume design goes to Barry Lyndon. Best Art Direction goes to Barry Lyndon. Best Cinematography goes to Barry Lyndon. And Best Film Editing goes to Jaws. And Verna Fields wins for this, Mm -hmm. whom I've talked about in our uh, Female Editors podcast episode. So there's an Academy Archives in which I talk about her and her Mm -hmm. career. So in the end, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest had nine nominations and won five. Barry Lyndon had seven and won four. Um, Jaws had four and won three. Uh, That's kind of the majority of the films that were nominated this year. At the end of the ceremony, there was an Academy Honorary Award given to Mary Pickford. And this was filmed in Mm. advance. It was uh, basically just to honor her immense contributions to the Academy. They filmed a long history of her career, both with the Academy and her own films, Mm. calling her America's sweetheart, all that kind of stuff. And then in the end, they went to the Pickford estate and they filmed the estate and all of the grounds and the art that they have in their home, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then they gave her uh, an Academy Award in her own home. 
And at this point, she had not been seen in public for a very long time. Uh, she's very old. Mm-hmm. Um, she passes away in about four years after this. So, like, she's kind of at the end of her life. So this is her last uh, Oscar, obviously, but also just an honor to her uh, and her immense contributions, along with her husband, Douglas Fairbanks, to uh, the Academy. Mm-hmm. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award goes to Mervyn Leroy. Obviously, he's a producer and a film director. Um, he had a big career in like silent films and vaudeville as well before Hollywood really took off, and he survived that transition, so he won this award. Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award goes to Jules C. Stein, who um, was a businessman who co-founded the Music Corporation of America. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two special achievement awards given, uh, one to Albert Whitlock and Glenn Robinson for visual effect work on the film The Hindenburg, oh. uh, and also to Peter Burkos for sound effect work done on The Hindenburg. Uh-huh. Sounds yeah. like they uh, might need to make a new category Possibly, or two. considering they're giving out these awards for, for effects. special effects every year. It's hmm. like they should just do something about that. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, they have not done anything. And uh, that's what I have to share about this Academy Awards. Um, it, it's pretty straightforward, honestly. Um, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest just took over. Everybody loved it. Um, yeah, that's what I have to share today. So with that, uh, we can take a little break here. And uh, when we come back, you can tell us about this film. Huzzah! And we're back. So to start us off, I will go through births, debuts, and deaths from the year of 1975. Starting with births, we have Dak Shepard, Jason oh Marsden, Bradley Cooper, oh my. Drew Barrymore, oh my. Eva Longoria, Pedro Pascal, Zach Braff, David Harbour, Christina Hendricks, Dulé Hill, Russell Brand, Angelina Jolie, Tobey Maguire, Judy Greer, David Dastmalkian, Charlize Theron, Casey Affleck, Taika Waititi, Caitlin Olson, Jason Sudeikis, Marion Cotillard, Kate Winslet, and Nat Faxon. Holy moly. Yeah. Wow. So many people. Yep. All pretty much still working pretty hard right now. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, some big debuts this year. We have Kim Cattrall, Tim Curry, Brad Dorif, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Fisher, Richard Gere, Bernard Hill, Christopher Lloyd, Bill Paxton, Dennis Quaid, Chris Sarandon, Patrick Stewart, and John Travolta. Hmm. They're all now in the game. And then we come to some deaths. Um, So first off, we have Marie Lore. Uh, She was an actress. She is notable because she spent a lot of time on stage. Um originating roles in George Bernard Shaw's plays, J.M. Barry, um, Somerset Mom, uh, and Noel Coward, among other writers who always wanted her to be in their productions. Also this year, we have Larry Fine and Mo Howard of The Three Stooges. Mm. Um, of course, uh, they are the last of the three still living until this year. Uh, then we have Bill Walsh. He was a producer and screenwriter for Disney. Um, he wrote and contributed to a lot of Disney films throughout his uh, career. He was a part of the producing team and writing team for uh, Mary Poppins. So wow. he received nominations for that movie. Um, next, we have George Marshall, director. Um, he was the director of How the West Was Won. Mm-hmm. So we talked about him. Mm-hmm. Um, Lillian Fontaine. No. Uh, mother of uh, Joan Fontaine. No. All right. Stole her last name from yep. her, even though it was not her it last name. It was not actually her name. I guess I shouldn't be bemoaning her death. It's been a long time coming, and she caused quite a stir back in her day. Yes. Um, of course, uh, she was an actress, and we spoke about her uh, when she happened to be in The Lost Weekend. Yes. And we talked about her when we talked about Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland, of course. Um, next, we have George Stevens, who is a producer. Um, he got 
so many nominations uh, during his career as a producer. He won uh, Best Director also for A Place in the Sun um, Mm. and for Giant. Mm. Two really, really great Elizabeth Taylor movies. Um, And then he also got the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award in 1953, you know, and produced many other films, including uh, The Diary of Anne Frank. Mm. So, long-time producer. Then we have Susan Hayward, one of my favorites from talking about the Academy Awards. Uh, Of course, she was an actress. She was nominated five times for Best Actress. She won for I Want to Live, um, which is definitely a movie that everybody needs to see. Very, very good. Then we have Friedrich March. No! Um, Of course, he was an actor, very acclaimed. He also received five nominations for Mm. Best Actor, um, and he had two wins. Um, He's the only actor besides Helen Hayes to win two Oscars and two Tonys. Wow. A real performer. Yeah. Um, Then we have Rod Sterling. He, of course, is a writer mm. and producer, best known for creating The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Well, that's sad. Um, next is Sidney Buckman, screenwriter. He got four nominations throughout his career and one win for Here Comes Mr. Jordan. He also wrote the script for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, okay. Um, next is William A. Wellman, uh, director of Wings. Oh. Wow, wow, he made it a long time. Yeah, he was nominated three times for Best Director, and then he also won Best Original Story for the original A Star is Born. Ah, okay. Yep. So he created that OG story uh-huh. for every other iteration. He did. Wow. Um, next is Bernard Herrmann. Uh, he was a composer. Um, he had five Academy Award nominations, one win for The Devil and Daniel Webster. Um, which was later renamed All That Money Can Buy. Um, His most famous collaborations are with Alfred Hitchcock, uh, primarily his score for Psycho. Ah, that's sad. Yeah. Um, Moving on to some uh, news bits from the year 1975. Uh, George Lucas, in preparing for his upcoming sci-fi epic, Star Wars, creates the company Industrial Light and Magic to work on special effects which, of course, becomes the ultimate premier special effects <laughs> company for all of Hollywood, um, basically considered the best in the game still to this day. Um, competing Chicago film critics Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert combine their efforts and create the TV show Opening Soon at a Theater Near You, uh, which is later renamed Sneak Previews, uh, detailing upcoming movies and news in Hollywood. Um, This year in 1975, we have the first full frontal female nudity in a major studio American film. Okay. So, a big turning point. Uh, And this is actress Susan Blakely in the movie Capone. Okay. Um, You may recognize these names, uh, but Michael Ovitz, Ron Meyer, Bill Haber, Michael Rosenfeld, and Roland Perkins decided to break off from the William Morris Agency to found Creative Artist Agency. Oh, CAA's in the game. Mm -hmm. In January of 1975. Wow, okay. Man, some of these agencies have been around forever. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And this was a big, big thing that they did. And they were able to create one of the biggest agencies ever. Yeah, wow, that's impressive. It worked out. Um, Kathleen Nolan was named as the first female national president of the Screen Actors Guild Hmm. in 1975, initially for a two-year term. She was then reelected in 1977 to serve a second term. Nice. Yeah. So congrats to her. The first episode of NBC's Saturday Night, which is the original title of Saturday Night Live, (laughs) was broadcast on October 11th, 1975. George Carlin was the host of the first late-night live broadcast sketch comedy and variety show with Billy Preston and Janice Ian as musical guests. Of course, it set the standard for subsequent shows and was renamed Saturday Night Live in 1980 and is very connected to the film and television industry and everybody involved in it. Um, Actor Jack Albertson becomes the seventh actor to achieve the Triple Crown of Acting, which, of course, is receiving an acting award uh, as a Tony, the Academy Award, and the Emmy Award. Mm. Um, So he received these. Um, In 1965, he received his Tony Award 
for Best Featured Actor in a Play for The Subject Was Roses. In 1968, he received his Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, also for The Subject Was Roses. And then in 1975, to complete the Triple Crown, he received uh, the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Continuing or Single Performance by a Supporting Actor in Variety or Music for the show Cher. Boy. Which was Cher's variety show. Gotcha. So congrats to him. He became the seventh to ever do it. Um, Also this year, we have the 28th Primetime Emmys. Uh, Some big winners this year are Betty White, Ed Asner, and Anthony Hopkins. Hmm. Um, And NBC's Saturday Night wins Best Variety for the first time. Wow, nice. In its first year. Um, Then we have the 30th Tony Awards. Um, The theme of the 30th Tony Awards, since it was such a big night, Mm. were the ones that got away. So they did a bunch of performances from musicals that did not win uh, Best Musical Tony, which is pretty fun. Yeah. Um, Of course, uh, Richard Burton performed from Camelot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But some of the others that were featured uh, musicals were Annie Get Your Gun, Paint Your Wagon, Peter Pan, West Side Story, Flower Drum Song, Mm. Gypsy, Gypsy. Funny Girl, I mean, Hair, Grease, Gigi, (laughs) Pippin, none of these won Best Musical. So pretty interesting. Just goes to show that awards don't mean anything. It's true. And speaking of that, Travesties by Tom Stoppard won Best Play and A Chorus Line won Best Musical beating Chicago. Oh my heavens above. Which did not win Best Musical. Wow. Well, it will win an Academy Award in the future, so there you go. It's true. Arena Stage uh, in D.C. was given the Regional Theater Award that year, which is very fun. Um, All in all, Chorus Line won 9 out of 12, and Chicago went 0 for 11. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) So its original production won nothing. Wow. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, So that brings us to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Also, uh, just before we get into talking about the movie, I just want to give a warning. We're going to discuss uh, lots of uh, intense themes because of this movie. Um, So check the uh, episode description if you want to see what those are. And let's get into it. So first, a little recap. Randall McMurphy is on a work farm for statutory rape of a minor and fakes insanity to get himself transferred to a mental institution to avoid doing manual labor. He starts to make friends with the other patients in his ward and enemies with Nurse Ratchet. He leads all the patients out in a stolen bus and they escape for the day, getting a taste of life on the outside. But he soon learns that most of the patients were checked in voluntarily and could actually leave whenever they wanted to. After some of his privileges are revoked, he starts making plans to try to escape with Chief, one of the only other patients who's been involuntarily committed. McMurphy ends up getting into a fight with the orderlies and is given shock treatment as a punishment. McMurphy, more determined than ever to get back at Ratchet, sneaks two sex workers in one night and throws a Christmas party for everyone. When Ratchet arrives in the morning, she purposely embarrasses Billy in front of everyone, threatening to tell his mother that he slept with a sex worker. In his embarrassment, he commits suicide, leading McMurphy to finally attack Ratchet, almost choking her to death. As a punishment, he is lobotomized, and Chief decides to suffocate him so he doesn't have to continue living that way. Then escapes the way they had always planned, finally flying the cuckoo's nest. (laughs) I feel like that was a very uh, plot-pointy kind of synopsis and not a very thematic synopsis, which the movie doesn't exist without the themes. Yeah, but... I mean, it's a recap of the plot. Okay. Well, that's what happens in the movie, but that's not what the movie's about. All right. (laughs) So this film had a budget of $4 million, um, and it ended up grossing $163.3 million. Um, It grossed $60 million in 1975, so it was number two at the box office that year. And it is still number 97 all time. Um, Nice. Up to this point, in history, 1975, it became the highest-grossing United Artists film. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, it cannot have been expensive to make. I just said only $4 million. I know. That's what I'm saying, though. It doesn't look like it was expensive. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so the novel of the story was originally published in 1962 um, in the midst of the civil rights movement and major changes to the way that psychiatry and mental health were looked at in America um, and a big movement toward deinstitutionalization. Mm-hmm. Author Ken Kesey was inspired to write the book because of his time working nights as an orderly at a mental health facility in Menlo Park, California. Actor and producer Kirk Douglas first purchased the rights to the story for adaptation as a play um, and produced the play on Broadway with himself starring as McMurphy. <laughs> and that is ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then Gene Wilder actually starred as Billy Bibbit in this production. Oh my production. goodness, when he was young. Yes. Wow, that's cute. It ran for less than 100 performances um, and was met with very mixed critical uh, success. Interesting. Um, People just were not sure about it. Sure. I mean, I read the book this year for a book club back in like March or something, and it was one of my favorite books of the year, Um, but it is a hard read. It's like very offensive, um, but -hmm. it's intentionally offensive, which I don't mind at all. Um, and it's just explosive. It makes you very uncomfortable. It's extremely aggressive and provocative, um, in a very like clockwork orange kind of way where it's like, you don't want to watch, you don't want to see what's happening, but it has a lot of heart. So it does Mm -hmm. feel more accessible. Um, and the characters are just so lovable. So it's like way easier to engage with. And the play is a very, very close adaption of the book. Um, I had not read the book before seeing the plays, but as I was reading the book, I was like, oh, yeah, this is like a very close version of what I have seen before. Um, I felt like this movie was very different in mm-hmm. a lot of ways from both of those adaptions. So I can see that if it wasn't well received as a play, there were probably some just like some like artistic changes that were made to make it more accessible to a wider audience because it is a little bit hard to 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 take in. Well, and it's interesting that the first iteration of the like the first production of the play wasn't as well received because there were many, many other productions of the play sure. before the movie came out. Well, and there's been many revivals of it. There's been a lot of big names attached to it throughout yeah. time. And now it's a major educational play. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of colleges and universities do it for educational theater. So it's not like it didn't make it. It just must have been too much at the time. Yeah. In the early 60s. Yeah, I can. I guess I can see that. Um, Douglas was very interested in producing and acting in a film of the story, um, but he just could not get any production company involved or distribution company or any kind of funding for it because of how it was received yeah and also it was a little much for people it it also i'm guessing it was a controversial book because of some of the things in it i mean there were points in time where i couldn't keep reading it because of the just way that women are talked about the blatant misogyny and sexism and just like the, the you know rapey vibes and like all this stuff that just is really it's violent it's graphic there's a there's a suicide. I mean, it's really hard to endure, um, but very powerful, very yeah. effective. Um, so after a decade went by, um, he felt that he was too old to play the part. Um, he got into his 60s and he was like, well, I, I'm aging out of this. He got into his 60s? Is that what you just said? Yeah. So he wasn't, he couldn't, he felt he couldn't play McMurphy anymore. No, McMurphy's like 30. Right. Yeah, he aged out of it a long time ago, is what I'm saying. Well, he did the Broadway show when he was, like, in his late 40s. Mm, And now he's in his 60s. And Okay. Yeah, he's right. He's on the money here. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Gosh. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Oh, I think I'm too old for this role. No kidding. So he's giving it up. I'm trying to tell the story. Can you let me tell it? All right. So after a decade went by... Uh, and he felt he was too old to play the part. He gave the rights uh, to the film over to his son, Michael Douglas, um, to see if he would have better luck producing it instead. Um, Michael Douglas was not interested in playing the role. But his first move was to bring on uh, producer Saul Zantz um, as a co-producer, who at this point in time was mostly a music producer, but was wanting to get into producing films. Hmm. A year or two before this meeting that they had um he had actually seen a version of the stage play in san francisco um and he 
initiated the conversation with Michael Douglas um, after finding out that he had the film rights. The reason they were able to do the movie is because Zance decided to fund the whole film himself. All right. Um, Coming up with the $4 million budget by borrowing against his own production company. Ouch. So, uh, which... Always risky. It worked out immensely. um, Yeah, but it it doesn't always. Yeah. Lawrence Hoban was brought on to adapt the script and ended up introducing Douglas to Milos Foreman, who would be hired as the director. Um, Douglas flew Foreman out and they went through the script page by page uh, with Foreman detailing everything he was interested in doing with the film. Um, Douglas ended up choosing him above other directors because of his transparency in the way that he was wanting to tell the story. For some reason or another, a lot of the other directors didn't want to like go into it at that detailed mm. of a level with him. Foreman wrote in 2012 uh, about this. He said, quote, to me, the story was not just literature, but real life, the life I lived in Czechoslovakia from my birth in 1932 until 1968. The Communist Party was my nurse ratchet, telling me what I could and could not do, what I was or was not allowed to say, where I was and was not allowed to go, even who I was and was not. Hmm. Um, so he felt the themes, obviously. Yeah, very connected to yeah, it. Yeah, which is why he was so interested in directing the piece. It's interesting that... Because it feels like a very American story. So it's very interesting to hear the perspective of a director from a different country feeling very related to it. Mm-hmm. And up to this point, he had mostly only done like art house style foreign films. Sure. Um, I mean, that's pretty evident in the style of this film, too. Yeah. So it was interesting for them to choose someone like him because he did not have a name in America. Mm. Or a narrative background, really. Yeah. After reading the novel, Zance felt that they should try to include Ken Kesey, um, whose work and adaptation rights uh, the Douglas family actually owned as part of a loophole uh, because the film could be adapted from the play without needing to use the book as source material. Yeah, gotcha. That is just an interesting tidbit about why they were able to still make the movie. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to repurchase the rights when they wanted to make it. Kesey actually did end up working on the script with Hoban, but eventually backed out because of creative differences, uh, casting disputes, and uh, the narrative point of view change. And he actually sued the production and won um, an undisclosed settlement. Wow. Yeah, I was really surprised watching the movie that it wasn't from the chief's perspective because that's what the book is. And Mm -hmm. so I was very confused as it started. I was like, what is going on? Is this the same story? Like, I don't know what is going to happen here. And as I was telling you, when we watched it, there were a lot of just like plot differences that I felt like weakened the story Mm -hmm. Um, because so much of the book and even the play, I would say, is focused on the relationship and the power struggle between Nurse Ratchet and McMurphy. And you have the two camps and they're fighting these battles day in and day out. One day she wins, one day he wins. And they're like, it's this long war that they're fighting, but every day's a battle. And you see the the guys in the institution going back and forth between where their allegiances lie and like where they find their courage, how they find their courage, if they find it at all, which mm. is essential to the story I think Ken Kesey was writing. Mm-hmm. Um which I felt like the movie totally missed. Mm. So Hal Ashby, um, who was one of the people considered for as director pretty early on, um, he was the first one who suggested Jack Nicholson for the lead. Um, but he was not hired, so that idea was forgotten for a little bit. Um, during the casting of this, several of the biggest names in Hollywood turned it down, including Gene Hackman, James Caan, Marlon Brando, and Burt Reynolds, um, who all are very closer to age to right. Kirk they're Douglas. Much older. Yeah. And also they're all like kind of like handsome guys, you yeah. know, and it's not a handsome character. It's a charismatic character, but like mm-hmm. part of it is that he is not like a conventional guy. Yeah. Um, eventually they ended up getting around to testing Nicholson yeah, yeah. and casting him. Um, he was only 37 when he did this role. Which makes much more sense. Yeah. And I mean, I think he embodies the character really well. Yeah. Danny DeVito was actually the first person to be cast. Cute. Um, he was so cute Playing in this the movie. role of Martini. Yeah. He actually played Martini in a previous off-Broadway production. Oh, awesome. Only a couple years prior. 
he is so funny and so cute in this. Yeah. One thing that they tried to do is they reached out to a bunch of people who had done like versions of the play Mm. just to see if there was any interest in them auditioning. Yeah. When we were watching this movie, we were like, how did they get this cast of guys in this? I feel like they sent out a casting call that was like, weirdest men in Hollywood. (laughs) Please come audition for this weird movie. They got some strange people very strange looking people strange acting people just runs the gambit of of strangeness yeah um one of the other roles that foreman knew he wanted to cast um was shelly duvall as candy um and he decided to watch her film thieves like us as a part of his consideration to try to cast her Hmm. um and that's where he noticed louise fletcher uh, who was playing mm. a small supporting role in the film. Um, she was only in this film. She had actually retired from acting about 10 years prior to this. Wow. Um, when she had her second child. Uh. And her husband was involved in this film, Thieves Like Us. And they were looking for somebody to play this supporting role. And they were like, well, will you just do it? And she was like, well, no, I don't want to like give in to nepotism. And they mm. were like, well... It's just a role. We just need somebody to play it. And like, we don't want to like have to cast it and Mm -hmm. you would be really good in it. Mm -hmm. So she did it. And uh, it was kind of a fluke thing that she did after she had retired. (laughs) Um, And 10 years had gone by already. And then suddenly she was seen in this film uh, by Milos Foreman. And he was like, well, she needs to be auditioned for Nurse Ratchet. Um, So he brought her in. But she describes all of those meetings as very strange because she would come in and she would audition and she would be told at the end of every audition she did, she did like six of them during the, during the process that she wasn't very good (laughs) and that she was not being considered, but they just wanted to see her one more time. (laughs) And then she knew that they were in the meantime, bringing in all of these really huge name stars Mm. to try to be in it with Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. Um, so some of the other bigger names that they were also auditioning who turned down the role um, were Ellen Burstyn, Angela Lansbury, Anne Bancroft, and Geraldine Page. Wow. Which would have made for an extremely different movie with yeah. all of them. Fletcher ended up having one final audition in December of 1974. And she finally got the call from her agent the day after Christmas that she had been cast and would fly to Oregon by January 4th to start rehearsals. Oh my goodness. Wow. There eventually ended up being some controversy over what the rest of the cast was paid compared to Jack Nicholson for the film. Mm. Um, According to Fletcher, he was paid, quote, an enormous salary for the film. Huh. Um, she mentioned that almost all of the other actors worked at or very close to scale and she only made $10,000 before taxes for her 11 weeks of work on the production. Whoa, that's nuts. Yeah. It was interesting because once she got on set and started working with, uh, Jack Nicholson, she had remembered that they had both been in an acting class together like Uh. years and years before before he had ever been discovered too. Wow. Which is really interesting. Uh, So they had a little bit of a rapport. And and then I pulled some quotes from her just because her involvement in this production is very interesting. Um, She also did a pretty long interview, um, big article about it in uh, 2016 with The Independent. Um. That is really worth reading, Um, but I'll just give a couple quotes from it. Um, This is her talking about how she felt the character needed to be nasty, and she didn't Mm. want to interact with everyone Uh to, like, keep a boundary. Yeah. Uh, She said, quote, The temptation was great to go out for dinner, to get a drink, Uh. but I knew that would be bad for me, so I made up a story that I was being harassed by a stranger and had to get out of there. The producers rented me my own little condo apartment. I desperately wanted to be on my own, to have the separation that I thought was so important for the role. And then this other interesting quote I felt was funny. She said, After a few days on set, Jack said to me, Jesus, we don't know a thing about this ratchet woman. What's her given name? And I said, Only I know what her name is. But he pressed, so I told him that it was Mildred. A few weeks later, when McMurphy comes back from electric shock therapy, and he's screwing around with the guys, pretending to be a zombie, he turns and he says, Hello, Mildred. 
and I blushed. You can see me changing color on camera. It was so wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) So she had a lot of good things to say about working with him. Yeah. I mean, they both seem like true actors in that like they have a process. They're, They're accessing their characters and like making decisions about how they're going to work based on their character work. I think that's really cool. Yeah. And the article is goes into like her career after this hmm. because she of course was not expecting to win an Academy Award um, <laughs> especially since she had been retired for 10 years um, but she talked about how like the Academy curse didn't really get her it like renewed mm. her career and like basically she was able to continue to be like a character actor for the rest of her career nice. and she's still working still so wow. like pretty amazing yeah um, the actors went through three weeks of rehearsals with Milos Foreman at the Oregon State Hospital in Salem, Oregon. Um, they each watched particular patients and interacted with them regularly over the three weeks to be able to more accurately portray their mental illnesses. Okay. Um, Nicholson and Fletcher were actually admitted into a session of electroconvulsive therapy being performed on a patient as well. Oh my gosh, yikes. They ended up being granted permission to film at the Oregon State Hospital. Um, and the director of the hospital, Dean Brooks, ended up playing Dr. John Spivey in oh. the film. Oh, huh. Um, Brooks picked out several patients that actually helped out with filming, um, several of whom worked as extras or did like random crew duties. <laughs> um, several of the actors actually spent nights sleeping in the wards with the patients as well during the filming, huh. since they were filming there also. They must have thought it was therapeutic enough to be doing this for the patients. Yeah, I guess so. Um, And it was interesting because a lot of the crew people and actors, like, learned throughout why they were there. And some of them were, like, very horrifying reasons. Oh, gosh. Where they were, like got to liking yeah, these and patients like, and also then... I mass murdered my family. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Oh. Yeah, so just some interesting tidbits about the film. Uh the last thing I want to share is a couple of um critics thoughts and then uh, a Ken Kesey thought. Oh good. <laughs> God. Um So uh, critic Vincent Canby, we've talked about him a a couple times. Um, He said, quote, a comedy that can't quite support its tragic conclusion, which is too schematic to be honestly moving. But it is acted with such a sense of life that one responds to its demonstration of humanity, if not to its programmed metaphors. Hmm. Which I thought was a pretty good description of the film. Yeah. Because like I was saying before, and like you mentioned, like the story itself has a lot of heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just so much going on and some of it is so like dark and intense. It sort of becomes or has to become rote, like, yeah, t- for it to come across in a way. Sure. Um, all right. And then I leave you with this quote by Ken Kesey. Also just an interjection here, which is that if you want a good time, just Google Ken Kesey, like check out the Wikipedia page. <laughs> it's a really fun night. You're going to have a lot to think about and a lot to talk about at your next dinner party. Yeah. His life is wild. Yes. Very bizarre. Um, so he said about this quote, Oscar night should have been one of the great days of my life, like my wedding. I really love movies. When they can be turned around to break your heart like this, well, it's something you never thought would happen. Ouch. Um, And then this was sort of a response uh, by Michael Douglas after he heard this. Um, He said, quote, it really was a magical experience for all of us, for everybody except, unfortunately, Ken Kesey. That has always hurt me, and it has probably hurt him a lot. It is the only thing about the film that I regret. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So... The main thing that Kesey was responding to is that his name was not mentioned once during the Oscar ceremony. Oh, wow. That is sad. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. And part of it is because of the lawsuit. And part of it is because of this or that, of creative differences, blah, blah, blah. He's also a bit of like a kookaburra. He's hard to get along with. Yeah. He's, I don't know, needy in ways. But, I mean, he definitely expressed his sadness. And I know, like... From other things that Michael Douglas has said, too, including this yeah. quote. Like, There's definitely some wrongdoing happening yeah, there. I'm sure they both wished it could have gone differently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like I was saying before, I I liked this movie. I would definitely like put it in the ones that like 
Oscar winners you should watch for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Also, um, what's his name of the actor who plays Wormton, who played Billy in it? Brad Dorif. Brad Dorif. Yeah, this is I his first love role. Him. He's so cute and he's a really, really good Billy. I I wish that they had developed his character more. Mm-hmm. I was really sad. I feel like his talent was wasted because mm. um, he was really good for this role. And it's an incredible role. And the way that it was in this film just didn't do it justice, at least in my opinion, mm. um, having experienced it in other mediums. And he is really good in it. I also, I mean, this is an actor's film for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, And so I also was just so immensely impressed with Christopher Lloyd. He knocked it out of the park. Mm -hmm. He was awesome in this film. This is his first film also. Yeah, which is wild to me. But he just, he killed his role. And I wish that I could see him do more stuff like that. Mm -hmm. A little abrasive, a little loud and boisterous. And like, his eyes are just like wild man eyes. Yeah. Well, and it was... Uh, like not having seen this film, it was really nice to see him do something that was different from just like crazy old man. Yeah. <laughs> like, which is basically the only thing I've ever gotten sure, to see him me do. Too, yeah. And I don't know. I just kind of wish that he hadn't gotten so pigeonholed by Back to the Future. Right. Yeah. You because can... he was not old when he did Back to the Future. That was only 10 years after this. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> well, and you can tell from this movie that he's an actor. Yeah. Like through oh, yeah. and through. Yeah. He he has a presence about him that is like, oh, that guy is like a tried and true actor. He's mm-hmm. gone to classes. <laughs> well, and that's how I felt about all of the actors in this. Like yeah. the supporting mm-hmm. cast is very, very strong. Very strong. Uh-huh. I could not believe that they found an indigenous person as big and tall and as encapsulating as they did to play the chief Yeah, there character. were a lot of quotes about him that I decided not to say because... Are they a little racist? Extremely racist. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, but they were all very glad to find him um, yeah. and surprised to find him. Yeah. I mean, when the camera first showed him, I was like, how did they find someone? Because one of the things about the book is they have drawings in the book. Right. And so they draw... Or Ken Kesey drew all the characters uh, at different times. And he looks just like the drawing. It's mm. wild. Hmm. Yeah. The other thing that I was going to ask you was, you sort of touched on it a little bit, but do you think that this, I don't know, I know that th- there's been talks to remake this, but I just wonder what it would have been like now mm-hmm. as like a series or something. Oh, I think it'd be awesome. I would love to see that because I think it needs a little more time. It's already a long movie, but I I felt like it needed more um, pointed exploration of the standoffs Mm. between the two entities, the the institution and the people who are institutionalized, Mm -hmm. because that's what's important to me, at least in this story. Um, And I felt like this film fell prey to a lot of just like the pitfalls of the time in that there weren't a lot of things that explored the really gruesome aspects of filmmaking. Um, you know, we've talked about the Godfather and the Godfather part two and how there were things in that that were very jarring for the public, right. which came to very like positive outcomes. It really helped and served the movie, but like be- the violence was like new and the way mm-hmm. in which some of the just things were done that were graphic was new. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of parts in this movie that suffered from a lack of being able to go as far as they needed to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess a, a trigger warning here and also a spoiler alert is that at the end, after Billy has committed suicide, during the struggle between McMurphy and Nurse Ratchet, one of the main points is that he's strangling her and rips her blouse open to expose her breasts just as the sex worker has been and like all these other things that like makes her level with them for that moment you Mm. know in the book in the book yes did not happen in the movie at all it's like a scuffle in the movie and it's like he is like killing her truly Mm -hmm. um and she has a like she almost dies she can't speak afterward like her neck has been crushed you know she survives obviously but like it's this really tense moment the other thing that i this is another personal just thing about the movie was i don't like how they handled Billy Bibbit's suicide, mm. I don't think they need to show it. In the play, they never show the suicide. Right. So in the play, 
he runs off stage. Nurse Ratchet hears the scream. She runs off with the other nurses and things. And then she comes back in and addresses the inmates. And she gives this horrifyingly descriptive, pointed speech at McMurphy that's like, in which she effectively accuses him of killing Billy in a way that is so offensive and horrifying to hear. As an audience member, you cringe, you start to cry if you're me. And it it gets under his skin in a way that nothing else has along the whole journey. Mm. Um, she finally like gets him in that moment. Um, and because she gets him is why he's lobotomized. Right. And so that to me is, I mean, Sorry, I feel like I'm saying everything I said in my book club recently, but <laughs> those were my thoughts about the movie that I feel like were not as effective. And so I I would be very on board to see a remake. I think there are a lot of really great young actors that would benefit from that. I think that it could also be just a really great way to talk about mental illness and about the power structures around that. I think that with a fresh, you know, 2020 perspective, I think a lot of new things could be brought to this story. So I am pro limited series version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Well, and it's interesting because I don't know who has the rights. Somehow Ryan Murphy got the rights to use the character yeah. of Nurse Ratchet. I did not watch that. And I can't say how that was. Yeah. But I don't know if like he had to buy the rights to the, everything to get it. I, I mean, I don't pray not. want him to make a I, series of this. Oh my gosh. I hope not. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. That th- I could see that being so much better than the movie was. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Especially if you could get the right people behind it mm-hmm. um, who could handle the subject matter delicately because there has to be. It is a very hard story and there's a lot of really bad things in it. And there's a way that you can show them that is helpful in a way that is hurtful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the movie erred on the side of not showing things as to not be hurtful, which maybe is better, I don't know. But I wish that it did veer into that territory a little bit more. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Welcome to our our movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the few movies that I feel like I have a good sense of knowledge around, but mm. I have never seen this movie before. So mm-hmm. it was definitely an interesting experience watching it. Yeah. Well, and with that, we come to our final segment uh, where we thank the Academy for things relating to this film, the people in this film, this year in film history. Um, What would you like to thank the Academy for today, Kristen? Hmm. Uh, First things first, I would like to thank the Academy for a career comeback. Yeah. Congrats to Louise Fletcher. Yeah, congrats. That's a very remarkable feat to retire, to kind of come back to the industry, and to be so well-received. Mm-hmm. I don't think her performance is the best performance I've ever seen, and maybe it's not the most dynamic version of Nurse Ratchet out there, but she really does it, and she does a good job, and that it became something bigger for her and revitalized her. I mean, that's pretty awesome. That's like the best case scenario for an actress so (laughs) yeah that was awesome yeah good for you i would like to thank the academy uh for stanley kubrick's film barry linden one of his least liked getting a bunch of awards and uh you know some of his other like more popular films getting nothing (laughs) yeah Just very funny to me. (laughs) He had a very strange relationship with the industry and the Academy. (laughs) That is for sure. I would like to thank the Academy for the big five winners. There's only been a couple of them. It's amazing to me that this did do it. Um, But I can see how it all came together, you know. Especially considering at least some of the actors that were yeah. up for stuff this mm-hmm. year. They're not performances that are like, have gone down in history. For, like Honestly, most of the categories, there isn't a lot that really, really would have come up strongly against it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of the obvious choice for a lot of the categories. Mm-hmm. I also, as a tandem, thank the Academy. I want to say thanks to the Academy for everybody, but the best actors who lost it for their team mm, multiple times. Sucks to suck. <laughs> Clerk Gable looking at you. <laughs> but he was a part of the first one. That's true. That's true. He just went downhill. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to... Uh... And remember, it happened one night. That's true. I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. And then I was like, oh, I loved that one. Yeah. Still in like my top five movies maybe that we've watched. Wow. 
I loved it. It was so cute. It was great. I would like to thank the Academy for special effects. We talked about mm. special effects a number of times throughout <laughs> this, uh, even though they had nothing to do with this film. Uh, but we mentioned the winners for the honorary award for special mm-hmm. effects as they're getting more and more involved in the film industry. Um, and then, of course, Industrial Light and Magic was formed this year in 1975, who will go on to win their own uh, Academy Awards later on for special effects. Um, so, yeah, shout out to the special effects people out there. Yeah. Maybe in the next few years, you'll get your own category. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> And with that, uh, we fly this cuckoo's nest, (laughs) the two of us. (laughs) Thank you for joining us and coming along with us through this trek. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, if you like our podcast, go give us a rating and a review. Oh, boy, it's been a while since we've asked that, but please do. Yeah, if you like it and you think other people should listen to it, too, that's a great way to uh get the word out there it uh gives us a little boost yeah every review that's on apple or spotify lets other people who look us up maybe say oh okay it might not be so bad (laughs) yeah or share it directly with a friend of yours who you know loves movies or history or history or you know if there's a specific movie that you particularly know a friend of yours likes yeah say go listen to that episode about that movie yeah you'll love it How many people listen to the Gone with the Wind episode? Oh, my word. So many. (laughs) Or if you want to send someone an obscure movie and say, you've probably never seen this. Maybe (laughs) you'd like to listen to it and learn about it. That would be better for us, honestly. Ship of Fools. (laughs) Gosh, no. (laughs) A nice obscure one. No, 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 no. Skip that one. Anyways, thank you to our regular listeners, of course. Yes, we appreciate it. We appreciate the feedback you give us every so often. Yes. And then uh, join us again next week because we're back. Hooray. We're back on our regular schedule every yeah. week. Bringing you a new Academy Archives about Jaws. Damn it. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.